between 2007 and 2010, the Bocas del Toro province of Panama seemed to have become somewhat of a Bermuda Triangle for American expats who had decided to take root in the Caribbean coastal area. Within those three years, five Americans mysteriously vanished without a trace, leaving their family and friends desperately searching for answers. Join me now as we look into their puzzling disappearances and how they later became found buried on a property of an island bar known by locals as the Jolly Roger Social Club. Sharon McConnell Dickerson was a close friend with Bo Eisler, one of the American expats who would later go missing. Before Sharon and Bo met, she had developed an aggressive autoimmune disease that had caused her to start losing her vision. She still had some of her eyesight, but at some point had to quit her job and leave her old life behind. Although undergoing numerous surgeries to try and save her vision, it rapidly faded away. But before Sharon completely lost her eyesight, she decided to move to the southwest desert of Santa Fe, New Mexico. She wanted the last thing she saw to be turquoise jewelry, golden sunsets, green and red chilies, and adobe everything. New Mexico license plates read, The Land of Enchantment. And that's one of the reasons why Sharon moved there. It was in Santa Fe when she met her friend Bo. He owned a small shop selling high-end cowboy and cowgirl couture, hand-tool western belts, pottery and jewelry. I came into his store, East West Trading Company. We just got talking and I, of course, was, I had to look around at all these beautiful things and I had a lot more vision back then. Today, Sharon's vision is almost completely gone. But back then, she could still get around independently without anyone suspecting her vision was impaired. When I met him, I did not walk with the use of a cane or a guide dog. Although my vision was impaired, I couldn't drive or anything like that. So I was able to look around at all these beautiful things, and I found a pair of ruby-colored, patent-leather, vintage boots that just were the coolest boots ever. Bo approached her, and he said, You know, I've had those there for so long, he said, but nobody's had the small enough feet to fit in those. And I said, well... They look about my size. Sharon and Bo quickly became friends. He introduced me to blues music, and I just loved it. And then I realized, oh my gosh, you know. She kind of liked him, so he asked her if he could take her out for dinner sometime. Sharon said that on her first date, she didn't want to admit to Bo that she was losing her vision. He took her to one of those fancy restaurants where everyone speaks in soft voices and all you can hear is the silverware clinking on the dishes. She opened up the menu and pretended to read it. She asked him what he thought was good on the menu. She'll never forget what she ordered. It was a beautiful seared tuna steak, and as they started to eat, Sharon looked down and saw what looked like a slice of avocado. As she took a bite, she quickly realized it was a fork full of wasabi. 
After she recovered from the embarrassment of the wasabi disaster, the two laughed it off, and she told him about her vision problems. We did go out on on a date and then other dates and um, had a romantic relationship for a number of months that ended abruptly with me jumping from his moving car, if that tells you anything. <laughs> we were on our way, I'll never forget, it was New Year's Day, and we were on our way to a brunch at uh, friends of his, and he just, he said something that just cut me right to the core, and I said, stop the car, I'm getting out. And he was like, but you won't be able to find your way home because you can't see too good. And it just freaked me out. And she jumped out of his car. She said the car was moving slowly, but still. I ran all the way home screaming. I remember it was just, it was awful. It just hurt me so bad. And yeah, so that's how it ended. And um, months went by um, where, you know, I never heard from him. And then I got a call from him just out of the blue. He called me and admitted that he felt he was, you know, in love with me and that he really wanted to try again to, you know, approach a relationship and and that he felt like he could um, handle, you know, my disability. I told him that what he said was um, had, had hurt me so deep to the core that I could not enter that type of relationship again with him, but that I felt I could be a good friend and that perhaps we were always meant to be good friends because we had so much in common and of interest and and like doing a lot of the same things. But it wasn't over. From that moment, Bo and Sharon became like sister and brother. Sharon eventually moved to Mississippi and got married to her husband, David. And Bo left New Mexico to start a new life in Central America. They went their separate ways, but they were never really apart. It's important to describe the bond these two shared because Bo was about to get wrapped up in an international con artist trap. When Bo got in trouble, even an ocean away, Sharon, his best friend, knew something was wrong. After Sharon left New Mexico, Bo stayed behind, but not for long. Bo had become just disenchanted, I think, with Santa Fe. He really wanted to meet a special lady, a special someone to have in his, his life. He wanted to go to a, a place that was slower, you know, quiet, a place where he could just be, you know, have a, a, a lot of privacy. He was a very private person. In 2004, Bo started researching a few places in the Caribbean and in Central America. He settled on a small chain of islands in Panama called Bocas del Toro. It literally means the mouth of the bull in Spanish. It was perfect. Bo bought three acres of land on one of the larger islands and built a house nestled between the jungle and the ocean. Bo and Sharon spoke on the phone almost every single day. Initially, he loved it and was often telling me that I needed to come and visit and and see the place. And 
I didn't uh, feel really confident at the time traveling alone to, to Panama. Bocas del Toro was the perfect place for someone who wanted to get away from it all, a place to leave it all behind. It was an archipelago where you could buy a private island in the bay that's only accessible by boat for less than $25,000. Seems too good to be true. And as you can imagine, the word got out quick and building your dream home on a private island drew many U.S. expats. And with the foreigners came a bunch of real estate scammers. You could buy a piece of land that had already been sold. Suddenly, multiple people were claiming to be the owner. But luckily for Bo Eisler, he had the deed to his property, and he was good to go. Sharon and Bo kept in touch. For the most part, I mean, we spoke a couple times a week, you know. I knew about all his friends and what he was doing and where he was going on a, on a regular basis. By 2009, only a few years after building his dream house, on the perfect tropical island, Bo decided that Bocas del Toro was not for him. He got disenchanted with, you know, the sincerity of some of the ladies he was dating. And, and you know, he was a gringo, right? Uh, with money. And uh, so that was... He, he became very lonely. Bo told Sharon that he wanted out and planned to move to Mississippi to be closer to her. I was single at the time, and we would be housemates here. I you know, have a large home, as you know, and, and there was plenty of room for him to have his privacy. So he put his house on the market, and eventually, a man going by the name of Bill Cortez and his wife, Laura Michelle Reese, were interested in buying the property. Bill Cortez was most commonly referred to by locals as Wild Bill. The deal between Bo and Bill was on. Then it was off. Then it was back on again. Finally, Wild Bill and his wife Laura agreed to purchase the house for $400,000. A very generous offer. The night before, I think it was, um, that they would sign the papers, he called and um, was very upset and said, well, this couple approached me to, to buy the house, and I get a call from this guy tonight saying that they're going to get a divorce and that the deal's off. That was the last time I talked with him, I think. Bo was never seen again. You know, for me, as I know that my friend disappeared, I didn't know it at that time, but I, I just felt like he was so upset about, you know, what, was ha what had happened that he needed space. You know, I respected Bo's silence uh, times where I may not have heard from him, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be long that I would, um, that he would call me and tell me what he was up to or where he went or, you know, this kind of thing. But this time, you know, I didn't. I didn't hear from him again. So did the deal fall through, or did the Cortez couple buy the property? And why would Bo just disappear like that? It didn't make sense. Something was wrong. Sharon called Bo, but he never answered. The painters showed up the next morning to work on the house, and that's when Wild Bill was 
sitting in the kitchen and and yelled at them to you know to leave and that he had bought the house and he didn't need them. Wild Bill claimed he was now the owner of Bo's property. So who is this Wild Bill? Where did he come from? And did he really purchase Bo's home? Wild Bill, whose real name was William Holbert, had long blonde curly hair and frequently wore a Viking helmet. He was six feet tall and looked like he was pumped up on steroids. Wild Bill was also the owner of a local bar he liked to call the Jolly Rogers Social Club. The bar, which sat off to the side of his island property, was a down-and-dirty watering hole, known for loud parties and occasional drug use. The decor was simple. Wild Bill flew a flag with skull and crossbones. Its motto was only 90% of our members survive. It was a trashy place, where local expats could play poker and have a reliably good time. The Jolly Roger Social Club was not exactly a cash cow either. If Wild Bill and his wife Laura were lucky, they could make about 50 bucks in profit on a good weekend. But let's back up a little bit. How exactly had Wild Bill ended up with such a large property to begin with? Three years earlier, Wild Bill and his wife claimed they bought their 45-acre property from a family called the Browns. Michael Brown and his wife Nan lived there with their teenage son, Watson. When Michael Brown posted the house on the market, he had received a call from Wild Bill, and they agreed to meet. The Browns' property sat at the edge of the peninsula and was only accessible by boat. It's reported that Michael Brown traveled by boat to pick up Wild Bill so they could work out the real estate deal. As the story goes, Wild Bill stayed with the Browns for three days, long enough to gain their confidence. According to Wild Bill, on the last night of his visit, Michael Brown signed over the property to him. Wild Bill explained that the Brown family handed him over the keys and quickly moved away. When people asked Wild Bill about the Browns, he simply replied that they left Bocas and didn't leave a forwarding address. The Brown family was gone. Wild Bill wasted no time. He and his wife quickly moved in and set up a bar at the end of the property, the infamous Jolly Roger Social Club. One of the bar's regular patrons was Cher Hughes, a businesswoman from Florida. Mary Whitmire, Cher's niece, describes her aunt as a pistol, a firecracker, and a lot of fun to be around. And she was um, kind of like Christy Brinkley in that um, she was an outside girl. I mean, she could run barefoot in the gravel. Uh, she could, you know, spend all day outside pulling weeds and, um, you know, looking for varmints on their um, property. You know, she had no trouble getting filthy dirty and working hard, you know, working up the sweat. And then she'd go in and shower and come out looking like Glamour Queen. So she she could work both ends of it. She could work hard and still look great, which is a trick not many of us can carry off. That was Cher. Just, a, you know, a lot of fun. Everything was funny. Um, but she counted her nickels and made them into dollars. And, uh, yeah, 
That's what I mean by a pistol. She was always a lot of fun, but she never lost a dime. <laughs> we asked Mary if she could explain how her aunt wound up in Panama. Well, then along came Keith Worley, her husband, and they fell in love, and she decided, um, I spent enough time working and making money. This guy and I, they, they were just um, hand in glove. They were great together. They took off sailing, ended up in, in uh, Panama, at Bocas del Toro, and said, hey, this is a great place to live. Shortly after arriving in Panama, Sharon and her husband Keith got to work purchasing properties and buildings and started fixing them up to make a profit. They stayed on their sailboat for quite a while looking for property. They found a little, uh, a little island that they bought and a piece of property in town. And Keith, who's a great carpenter, they built a hotel for income. So they built this hotel, they had an income, and then they started working on their little um, island, which became an amazing piece of property. Unfortunately, somewhere along the line, Cher and her husband split up. Cher found herself living in her dream home just a mile away from the Jolly Roger Social Club. Despite her cheerful appearance, Cher's family said she was lonely out in Panama all by herself. She also started to fear for her safety because there were two or three break-ins on her property and it appeared as if someone was trying to force open her filing cabinet. Cher Hughes and Wild Bill were acquaintances, as were all American expats in the area. According to Mary, Cher had no intentions of selling the property. She had big plans for it. So it's unclear why Cher had been seen by two local men who were paid to maintain the Brown family property had seen Wild Bill and Cher in a boat together. She was never seen again. When Cher went missing, family and friends all jumped to the same conclusion. It was her husband, Keith. Cher's niece, Mary, recalls. Everybody was like, oh, Keith killed her to get her money. Keith was calling me, too, going, have you heard from her? What's going on? I can't find her. And so I knew in my soul he had nothing to do with it. But immediately the, you know, the local police must have thought, oh, okay, the husband did it. I had family members convinced that he did it and that way we can get her money. You know, there are people in this world who are simple-minded, who want a simple explanation. It appeared that either Wild Bill was a real estate genius, or something was terribly wrong here. Where was Bo Eisler? Where did the Browns go? And where was Cher Hughes? It was highly suspicious and unbelievable that they would have all skipped town after selling Wild Bill their dream homes. Pretty soon, people started to worry about Cher's whereabouts. She was always around. Where could she possibly be? Cher's friend, who was expecting to meet her a few days after she sold Wild Bill her property, never heard back from her. Her friend tried calling her cell, but there was no answer. A friend named Miguel Angel got on his boat and went out to Cher's house. He docked the boat and approached her property only to find Laura, Wild Bill's wife, there. She told him to get off the property because it was hers now. 
She told him that Cher got sick and moved to Panama City. But that's when Miguel heard a whimpering. It was Cher's two dogs. Something was really wrong. Cher would never leave her dogs behind. Later that day, Cher's ex-husband Keith received a text message from Cher. It read, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I met a guy and went off on a sailboat with him. The last three or four texts I got were just a little, little strange. They weren't quite what Cher would say. And she indicated in the text that she had met someone and she was leaving. Mary wasn't buying it either. Did she really meet some guy? And then I'm like, oh my God, has she been kidnapped and she's some sex slave on, you know, the back of somebody's garage? I mean, you, you just couldn't make sense of any of it. And okay. your mind simply does not say, oh yeah, she was murdered. You just justify that. You will not accept it. Keith didn't believe that Cher would have sold her home, so he confronted Wild Bill. So I said, Bill, show me some papers. Show me you really bought something because Cher would never sell the island, certainly not without talking to me about it first because you know, it, was our, it was our home. Somehow, Mary Whitmire got a hold of Wild Bill's phone number and called him. I know this sounds crazy, but after the conversation, I got on my knees. I knew I had spoken with the devil himself because when I first spoke to him, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm in Boca del Toro. And uh, Cher sold me her house and her property. And I said, well, I'm in Texas. And all of a sudden, he slithered into another character. All of a sudden, he was from Texas. He had a little bit of a draw. And he went to a high school down in Texas. And he knew all these places. And I'm like, what? This is crazy. But I let him talk. I knew he was a bad guy. I knew he was evil. When I talked to him the one time, he goes, yeah, come on down. Um, I'll take you around and we can look for her. And then he kind of smirked, snarled, you know, ha ha, you're not going to find her, but I'll help you look for her. And I called Keith and I'm like, this guy's offering for me to come down. And he, Keith was crazy. He goes, you stay a million miles away from this guy. He is bad. He is bad news. And I knew over the phone, but when I was having ever seen him, I didn't really get how evil he was. It was around the same time that Michael Brown's older children, who hadn't lived with them in Bocas del Toro, started to get worried. Watson, their teenage son, stopped writing emails to his half-sister and brother. Also, Michael Brown's financial manager noticed that money was being withdrawn from the Browns' bank account. But despite all this, the Browns were clearly gone, and nobody filed a missing persons report. Sharon McConnell Dickerson describes when she first realized that her friend Bo could be in trouble. I suspect he was missing a couple months. You know, I figured mm, something's wrong. And, uh, you know, I was getting his uh, credit card statements, and I felt like if he was traveling, that there'd be something on there, you know, and payments, yeah, and there was no activity. And Bo, um, Bo paid off his, uh, his credit card bills, but there wasn't any, any activity at all in them. Sharon started making phone calls. I had heard through the grapevine that he had sold his house, and, and this, this couldn't have been true because I would have heard about it. Suddenly... She remembered the name of Bo's real estate agent. 
he kept mentioning the name Walter Kawano, so she tracked him down. You know, Walter would be the one that I would uh, later convince and plead to go make a missing persons report because I couldn't and I didn't want to fly to Panama and and do that. I, I felt fearful of going to that place. At this point, Sharon was really worried, so she called Bo's attorney in Bocas. His lawyer happily gave Sharon the name and cell phone number of the new owners of Bo's house, William Holbert, Wild Bill. I did call the number. There was no answer, and I left a message that was friendly. Hey, you know, I heard that you bought my friend Bo's house, and I hadn't heard from him, and, you know, just wondered if you knew where he went and where he moved, and please give me a call. And then I waited and waited, you know, no response. I called him back a second time and said, I really need for you to call me. Something's wrong. You know, please, please call me. Um, The last time I called Wild Bill, um, I left a a very, uh, well, a threatening message and said, I know that you did not buy my friend's house. And if you don't call me back, I'm going to call the local police. And then I'm going to call the U.S. Embassy in Panama. And I hung up. And then I immediately called the U.S. Embassy and told my story there to someone. And they put me on hold and came back on the line and said, my supervisor is allowing me to share some information with you about another missing persons report on the same island. I think you and the family should be in touch with each other. And that's when he told me that Cher Hughes was missing. And that her niece, Mary Whitmire, had reported her suspicion and that she knew something was very wrong. And then you call and say the same name, Bill Cortez. because she had said Bill Cortez had purchased, supposedly purchased, Cher's property. And then I tell them the same name, a person has so-called, you know, purchased Bo's property, and he said, so now they were going to begin investigating. police started searching through airline records for Cher Hughes. The local media published missing posters for Bo and Cher, asking readers to be on alert. The walls were closing in on them, and just like that, Wild Bill and his wife Laura slipped out of Bocas del Toro. After obtaining a search warrant, Panamanian detectives raided the Browns family property. Once inside, they found Cher's passport, checkbook, credit cards, 
person cell phone. The two local workers who worked on the property told police that Wild Bill had asked them to dig two holes in the jungle behind the property. They said that Wild Bill instructed them to dig each hole six feet long and five feet deep. He told them it was to bury trash. Police started digging, and almost immediately, they uncovered a blue plastic tarp. Inside was the body of Cher Hughes. Keith recalls police asking him to come along to identify her belongings. They found her camera, her credit cards, her purse. So they just wanted me to positively identify those items. The last thing I thought I'd be identifying her body coming out of a hole in his backyard. Then police found another shallow grave a few yards away. There, Bo Eisler was buried. Eventually, they would find three more graves. One for Michael Brown, his wife, and teenage son Watson. Wild Bill and Laura were on the run. But where had they come from in the first place? This couldn't possibly have been their first run-in with the law. And it wasn't. In 2005, William Holbert wasn't known as Wild Bill. Just two years before moving to Panama, William lived in a small North Carolina town called Four City. There, he had opened up a bookstore on the main street, selling hate literature. William Holbert would stand outside the store, shouting into a megaphone and handing out flyers. At that point in William's life, he acted nothing like Wild Bill from Bocas del Toro. Wild Bill had long blonde hair, spoke Spanish, and liked to party. On the other hand, William Holbert was angry, had a shaved head, weighed more than 240 pounds, and had many tattoos. Eventually, Holbert closed down his bookstore and moved across the state to the North Carolina coast. There, he and Laura Reese cooked up their first con artist scheme. They forged a deed to an empty beach house and called a developer looking for houses to flip. Holbert told the developer that he needed to sell his house quick and was willing to sell it to him below market value. Holbert took the man's deposit of $200,000 and took off running with the cash. Months later, the real owner showed up to her beach house only to find it being renovated by the man who claimed to own it. By the time everyone figured out that they'd been scammed, William Holbert and Laura Reese were gone. They had headed west in a stolen car with fake IDs and were traveling from state to state. While crossing Wyoming, they were stopped by a highway patrolman. When the trooper walked back to his car to run their license, he found their aliases in the system and figured out that they were wanted in North Carolina. But by the time he had figured that out, Holbert hit the gas and drove off. Holbert and Reese were driving an SUV in a high-speed chase. This is actual audio from the trooper's dash cam. Bring it behind you. Stop right now! We're going up the hill, off-road, exit one. The road went on forever without an obvious exit. So what did Holbert do? He swerved right and started to drive straight up a hill. There was no way the state trooper could go after him, and the two fugitives got away. 
Holbert and his wife had no place to hide, so they packed their bags, most likely with the $200,000 that they stole from the beach house scam and hopped on a cruise, never to step foot in America ever again. Five years later, and five people buried at their stolen Panamanian property, Wild Bill and Laura Reese were on the run again. This time, their pictures were all over local TV and newspapers. They were spotted in a small town in Costa Rica. Now, they were also running from the FBI and Interpol. At some point, Wild Bill and Laura managed to steal a powerboat and headed north to Nicaragua. As they were crossing over the Nicaraguan border, they were greeted by police holding machine guns and taken into custody. Ariel Barria, the spokesman for the National Police at that time, recalled the days following their arrest. We were all amazed to see how the detainee behaved. He waved and smiled at the cameras as if he was a rock star. That's the only way we had to describe it, even though the circumstances were so tragic. He used a 38 caliber and he used to, he was saying very proudly that he shot them in the back of the neck. When the investigators asked Wild Bill why he killed his victims, he said, it gives me no pleasure to kill people. It's a difficult decision to make and it's difficult to do. He described asking Michael Brown to show him around the property. That's when he shot him in the back of the head. Then, he called Michael Brown's unsuspecting teenage son over and shot him the exact same way. He went around the property and then shot Nan Brown. As for Bo Eisler, Wild Bill said he'd decided to kill him because he thought Bo was hiding from the law. He figured no one would ever come looking for him. And his last victim, Cher Hughes, died according to Wild Bill because he felt she was addicted to drugs and had lost her desire to live. So he killed her and took her possessions. He actually had considered Cher as a friend. He said his wife, Laura Reese, had nothing to do with any of the murders. All she knew was that she magically had a new house and that the family that had lived in it before had disappeared. William Holbert also admitted killing one other person during his time in Bocas, but this time he said it was an accident and that he didn't even steal the property. Both Wild Bill and Laura Reese are behind bars, sitting in a Panamanian prison. William Holbert was sentenced to 47 years, and his wife got 26 for her involvement in the murders. While in prison, Wild Bill claimed to have found Jesus. He also currently is going by a new name, Brother William Holbert. God bless everyone. I'm William Dathan Halbert from Panama Prison Ministries. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and ye shall be hated of all the nations for my name's sake. This verse comes from the 24th chapter of Matthew and proves true for almost two years. I would be persecuted by the prison authorities. 
my lawyer sister Claudia Alvarado would fight even to the Supreme Court to reopen the and advance our cause. The Good News of Jesus Christ, Panama Prison Ministries. During the years 2013 to 2015, I would be severely tested, starved for weeks at a time, beaten twice by the guards, and four attempts would be made on my life by gang members, a shepherd with no flock. He explains that he was hired by a cartel kingpin to carry out the murders. I am no Boy Scout, brothers and sisters. I did not get to be where I am because I stole chickens. I am charged with various homicides and organized crime. I was made infamous after my arrest for being the chief collector and punisher for a powerful international cartel. For 15 years between 1995 and 2010, I operated as an emissary of evil and death. First as leader of a private right-wing militia in the United States, and then as an international cartel collector and ultimately as executioner of said international cartel. Many people remember my fall and subsequent arrest here in Central America in the year 2010. I was captured by the Nicaraguan military in an operation that took place in a war zone in between Costa Rica and Nicaragua. From Nicaragua, I was transferred by air to Panama to stand trial. Here, I was remitted to Central America's most violent prison, La Jolla, and held in infamous cell block 7 in a maximum security cell, all alone in perpetual solitary confinement. My fall from power was drastic. From a millionaire cartel boss, violently dripping with power, to a lowly slave of the Panamanian state, impotent to help myself. So as you can imagine, when Sharon McConnell Dickerson and Mary Whitmire told us their stories, it just seemed so unbelievable. Man, it was its one of the most traumatic events in my life that I've gone through is uh, how I lost a friend like that. And months and months of uh, worry and research and trying to connect and and not being able to access the internet because I'm blind. Um, so I, this was all phone calls and just, man, high drama. Sharon recalls one of her last conversations with Bo. We had talked about me coming down and get on the plane and, you know, go to Miami. Then you come here. It's no problem. If I had gone on that trip for my birthday, I would have been there the night and probably that he was murdered. And I probably would have been been murdered, too. Mary explains how she thinks Wild Bill got away with murdering people for so long. Well, it explained to me that Americans go to Panama because they're hiding out. So you're a drug dealer and the cops are on you. You owe your wife too much money in alimony. You just hijack it and go down to the country of Panama. So you're either not wanted or you're wanted. And so those are people who have no family, no connection. So they're not missed when they go missing. Mary Whitmire credits the FBI and many others for helping capture Wild Bill and his wife and bring justice for her aunt. Independent people of Panama who helped find this guy was amazing. All the, the local people who made phone calls to the police and credit to the local police 
who did not move against Holbert because they knew they were outgunned, outsmarted. They're like, I'm not touching this guy. I'm going to leave it up to the to the big boys to take care of Holbert. I mean, you got to give credit to so many people for catching this bad guy. Wild Bill relied on his belief that victims he had chosen wouldn't be missed by family or friends. Was he ever wrong? Bo had had Sharon, and Sharon had me, plus Keith, plus, you know, all of her friends in Boca Socorro. He wasn't going to get away with this after killing her. He just killed the wrong girl. He just, he picked the wrong girl. He had no idea how many people loved her and how many people would care. Thanks again for listening to this very special episode where we collaborated with Javier, the host from the podcast Pretend Radio. And now I'd like to share a conversation I had with him about why he chose the Minds of Madness to participate in this unique opportunity. Hey Javier, thanks for giving us the opportunity to present your hard work. We're really big fans of your show. This is an episode you've already covered, and it might seem unusual to your listeners and ours that we're replicating it with our own madness twist. Maybe you could just explain to us why you decided to give us this opportunity. When I first started working on this story, I immediately thought about the minds of madness because my show is more about deceptions, lies, you know, people pretending to be someone else. Yeah. In this case, it was about Wild Bill. He's a con artist. But he's not just a con artist. He was, he's also this brutal murderer. I would consider him a, a serial killer. So when I first heard the story, immediately I thought of you and Beck and how you guys would cover it and how your audience would appreciate the story. But I also wanted to give you, even though we covered it on Pretend Radio, I wanted to give you something more to share with your audience. And it was an extra interview that people didn't hear on my show, which is with Mary Whitmire, which is Cher's niece. The story's pretty crazy, especially when you think about it. There are so many unsolved murders and missing people in our own country. Even with all the resources we have, it's remarkable how Sharon, considering with all the challenges she was up against, you know, no eyesight, not able to use the internet, being in another continent, was able to pull all these pieces together and get justice for a friend. What's your take on all that? Trying to solve uh, a murder like this is, is hard, even if it happened in Canada or if it happened in the United States. But then you add that element of happening in a, in a third world country, and it gets exponentially harder. Uh, like you said, Sharon had so many challenges. But we also have to remember the time that this took place. I mean, yeah, they had the Internet, but it wasn't like today where information is so readily available. So trying to to get to the bottom of this and trying to connect all the pieces to Wild Bill and his wife must have been a huge challenge. And when I spoke to both Mary and Sharon, they described this as not like a couple of days of their lives or a couple of weeks. This was, this consumed them for yeah. a year or more, you know, just trying to pull all these pieces together. So what you heard today was the, this period in their lives condensed into a tight period mm -hmm. in, on our show. You'd mentioned that most of your research was based on a book written by Nick Foster. Both you and Beck had tried to track him down to interview him, but were unsuccessful. When I first heard about the story, 
he interviewed Sharon, who's a friend of mine, and Sharon immediately put me in touch with Nick. And I reached out to Nick, and he wrote me back, and he said, you know, he's, he's moved on from this project. And he wasn't really interested in diving back into it, but it served a really important tool for telling the story because, you know, even though we got firsthand account from Sharon, we got firsthand account from Mary Whitmire, Nick actually traveled to Panama and he was able to fill in a lot of the blanks that we just didn't have. So he put this story into context for us. And one of the unique elements about his book was traveling to Panama and interviewing well, Bill, as you just said, what were your thoughts on, on that interview? I asked Nick if he had any recordings of the interview, and he said he didn't, but he describes it really well in his book. And when he approached Wild Bill in prison, Wild Bill, he'll give you an answer for whatever you want to hear. He, he'll, he'll start spinning things. And, you know, like the story that he told Nick was that he was a hired gun from a, a big cartel. Yes. And, you know, even meeting the guy, you're not going to get a straight answer. William Holbert just has many faces. And unfortunately, even Nick Foster in front of him couldn't get a straight answer for why he did this. So is there anything else we didn't discuss in the episode or anything like that you'd like to add to this? You know, we spent so much time talking about these horrific crimes that Wild Bill and his wife committed, but we sometimes lose sight of like the real heroes of this story. And once the authorities, the FBI, the local Panamanian authorities and the Nicaraguan government started putting the pieces together, they were the real heroes because they quickly cornered them. Bill Cortez and his wife were basically, you know, hijacked a, a, a boat and tried to get away. And the Nicaraguans met them, you know, at the border. Yeah, at and, gunpoint. You know, it, if, if it wasn't for that kind of collaboration and coordination between all these governments working together, yes. these guys would have gotten away with it. Totally. That was pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a really insane story that... Um, it was hard to put together because it almost seems unreal. Yeah. Right. I get it. You know, if, if Hollywood would have made it up, it would have seemed too fantastical. Well, exactly. But, That's how you explained it at the beginning of your episode. It sounds like something right out of a movie. And I'm surprised I hadn't heard of it. That's and, the number one thing everyone tells me yeah. when they find out about the story. That how did I never hear about this story? You know, we hear about like all these other serial killers and I would consider him a serial killer. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he definitely if, was. if it weren't for Mary and Sharon, this is something really important that, that really struck me after putting the story together is that if it weren't for Mary and Sharon, mm-hmm. he would have continued. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't going to stop with, yeah. with Cher. He was just going to con somebody else and murder somebody. So in a way, you know, I was talking to Sharon and I, and I told her that thought that I had that, you know, in a way they stopped somebody else from getting murdered. And she had never really thought about it that way. But it's true. Of I course. mean, there was not, nothing that was going to stop this guy. He killed her friend and then killed an entire family. I mean, the guy had no limits. I think he kind of chalked it up that these people mm-hmm. that he was targeting a, they wanted to get away or they didn't have anybody that was going to look for them. 
And he made a really, really poor calculation there because Bo Eisler and Cher Hughes had people that really deeply cared about them. You know, he just chose the wrong people. So this is interesting. We didn't get to this in the in the story because it's kind of like a side story. But a lot of these uh, American expats travel to places like Boca del Toro because they don't want to be found. So in in the case of Michael Brown, he was a criminal that was pretty much hiding from the law in Panama. And so when his whole family gets murdered, no one really noticed. Oh, wow. I didn't. Yeah. So there is a whole side story there that Nick does a good job of covering in his book. So if your audience is interested, I would highly recommend getting a copy of the Jolly Roger Social Club. Yeah, it's a, it's a very fascinating story. So I just looked up here is according to the FBI, serial killer is someone who commits at least three murders over more than a month with an emotional cooling off period in between. I think that yeah. pretty much sums them up. I think so too. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I mean, what attracted me to the story was really the, the deception part. But I mean, he is a classic serial killer, but we know about Ted Bundy. We know about all these other guys. Yeah. But we don't. We don't know about William Cortez. And and you know what? I hope history remembers him as as a murderer, his victims. And, you know, nobody expects like someone like Bill Cortez to like walk up to their door and take their property and kill them. Yeah. But maybe by telling this story, we're opening up people's eyes that people like this exist. Mm-hmm. I really like your style of writing reading it uh it's very it's very fluid and it's really easy to to narrate if people haven't checked out your show which i'm i'm really encouraging our listeners to 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 give you a listen can you give us uh, just a breakdown on pretend radio and you know what your show is all about yeah my show pretend radio is i like to say my elevator pitch is it's it's a show about people pretending to be someone else so what does that mean i mean it could be a con artist you know it could be a hijacker i just uh we had a hijacker on the on the show that pretended to be a passenger so like any story about deceptions and lies i like that psychological aspect to the show so it, it is true crime in a sense but i like to call it like diet true crime so <laughs> i don't have a whole lot of murders on the show yeah. so like this episode's kind of unique you know where it happens to be a story about a con artist who's also a murderer but i like to get into the into that psychology of why people fall for these traps a lot of times we wonder didn't they see that coming this one woman who was the wife of the ceo of wendy's her husband passes away she inherits all this money and this guy just walks into her life and drains her whole bank account how does that happen you know what i mean and so we like to get into the heart of those stories and and talk to the victims but i also like to talk to the con artists themselves so it's a lot of fun i mean it's hard to categorize my show but if i had to boil it down it's it's all about deception we're huge fans we absolutely love your show and uh, (laughs) i'm really hoping that uh, our listeners are going to give you a give you a shot and i know they're going to become instant fans we've been friends for a while now and i'm so glad that we're finally collaborating oh yeah this is going to be great this is what we say in the south here in america that's going to tickle me to death when i hear (laughs) your voice i tell my story that's going to be amazing that's going to be cool i would also like to thank our new patreon supporters Raina mermaid martin h alexandra dre l mark d and Lindsay M. 
And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Secret Life of Weddings. Hey guys, it's Lisa and Rebecca from the Secret Life of Weddings podcast. And I know what you're thinking, oh, a wedding podcast? It's it's really not what you think. Not at all. We tell the world's craziest true wedding stories. This is insanity. Like we're talking the bride is pregnant with the best man's baby. A man dunks his entire head into a chocolate fountain. Lisa's not kidding. This stuff is legit crazy. Come check us out in the Secret Life of Weddings podcast. And remember, anything can happen at weddings. And we will be here to tell you all about it. And a better night's sleep. Join us on A Better Night's Sleep, the podcast that provides sleep tips, information on sleep disorders, and evidence-based treatment. We'll talk with leading experts in sleep and sleep disorders. Although we made this for the military community, everyone can use a better night's sleep. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally... The closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E. Someone's standing at my 